Hi, welcome to Yuskogans, the International Law Podcast. This is episode 15. Yes, we have finally made it to episode 15. And today we are going to talk to uh, Anna Venturato. Uh, again, uh, I've probably pronounced your name wrong, like I always do. Uh, but Yeah, so uh, Anna is a DPhil student and a tutor in public international law at Oxford University. Her thesis explores the availability of defenses codified in part one, chapter five of articles on the responsibility of states for internationally wrongful acts, also known as RCEVA, in international adjudication. Her research explores four adjudicative bodies or systems, the International Court of Justice, the WTO Dispute Settlement System, Investment Arbitration, and European Court of Human Rights. Uh, today, we'll be discussing an interesting issue with respect to international dispute settlement in the context of a piece written by Anna on the blog of EGIL Talk, uh, titled Defenses and Indispensable Incidental Issues the limits of subject matter jurisdiction in view of the recent ICJ, ICA, or council judgments. Uh, thank you so much, Anna, for being on the podcast. Uh, it's uh, lovely to have you with us today. Thank you very much for the invitation and for your kind introduction. I'm very excited to be here today. Oh, perfect. Uh, so we found your piece very interesting and it raises a very valid point. Uh, so before we actually get into the actual uh, discussion, can you give us a brief overview of the dispute between Qatar and the Quartet states and what were the measures that were introduced, the overview of perhaps the legal proceedings uh, before the International uh, Civil Aviation Organization and the International Court of Justice so that we have a context of uh, what the dispute is about and what, what, what is the issue that we are dealing with. So, yeah. Yes. So, um... Uh, the recent ICJ judgments were uh, related to only some of the aspects of a broader dispute, which is also very, very complex. So this dispute, of course, could be um, the subject of a whole different podcast. It involves a lot of issues, of course, not only legal matters, but also issues of international relations and politics and history and the power struggle in the area. Um, in a nutshell, what is most important for the purposes of the present discussion is that Bahrain, Egypt, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, also known in the context of this dispute as the Quartet, imposed in 2017, in June 2017, an air, sea and land blockade and severed all diplomatic and trade ties with Qatar. So this was actually a blockade that involved a, a set of comprehensive measures against Qatar, which had, of course, severe consequences for Qatar. So uh, different aspects of these comprehensive measures are subject of different legal proceedings before different international dispute settling bodies. To name just a few of the measures that are subject now to legal proceedings, and of course the facts, the precise facts of these, um, uh, these measures are subject to dispute. Um, so some of the measures were that all airlines uh, based in this country suspended flights to and from Qatar, Qatar registered aircrafts could no longer fly to these countries or have any overflight through their territory. So essentially they had to reroute all the flights through the territory of Iran. The countries further ordered their citizens to evacuate Qatar. And they also asked Qatari citizens and visitors to leave their countries with a period notice of two weeks. And they couldn't get back into these countries. Um, Qatari media was also banned from broadcasting into these territories. And the states also adopted what, they, what is known as general anti-sympathy measures. So essentially any expression of sympathy towards Qatar and its, um, and its policies would be considered as a crime in some of these countries. Um, and we see some of the aspects of these anti-sympathy measures in different disputes. For example, in the recent uh, dispute um, 
before the WTO dispute settlement system uh, against Saudi Arabia, we see that these general anti-sympathy measures were preventing lawyers in Saudi Arabia for pro from providing legal advice or representation to Qatari nationals in order to enforce their rights before Saudi Arabian courts. So these different measures and different aspects of the blockade are now subject um, are now the subject of multiple legal proceedings. So um, we have the proceedings before the ICAO Council, which are uh, related to the restrictions in civil aviation. We have the proceedings before the International Court of Justice regarding the Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, as well as the Committee of, uh, on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, where um, interstate communications have been submitted. We have the dispute in the WTO uh, against Saudi Arabia regarding intellectual property rights, where we have now the panel report, but we are expecting potentially, although of course, under the circumstances, we don't know um, an appeal decision in the future. We also have further WTO uh, proceedings against uh, the United Arab Emirates regarding trade in goods. And we also have um, investment arbitral proceedings that are pending, initiated by Qatar Airways regarding uh, the uh, airways restrictions, as well as by pharmaceutical companies regarding effects in their investments um, in the territory of the quartet. So jumping straight into the decision uh, by, rendered by the International Court of Justice in terms of the ICO jurisdiction. So what legal basis does the quartet rely upon in terms of uh, imposing these sanctions on Qatar? specifically in the context of circumstances including wrongfulness, and maybe if you could also describe their legal basis and sort of how they work in practice. Yes, of course. Okay, so according to the Quartet and their statements, the embargo was actually imposed on Qatar um, for allegedly supporting um, and harboring terrorist individuals and organizations, and for allowing them to use Qatar-based and Qatar-sponsored media in order to further their views. Notably, they are actually accusing Al Jazeera of doing that, and they, they take a special issue against Al Jazeera. The Quartet was also uh, accusing Qatar of meddling in their internal affairs. So all these issues um, are, according to the Quartet, in violation of a set of agreements that were concluded by these states, the Riyadh agreements, which were negotiated and concluded in the context of the Gulf Cooperation Council and aimed to ensure stability in the region because there, were already, um, there was already tension in the relations between those states. So essentially what they are saying is that these measures are countermeasures taken in response to the prior internationally wrongful act of Qatar, which is essentially the violation of the Riyadh agreements through the sponsoring of terrorist organizations and the um, uh, intervention in the internal affairs of these states. So we know that under general international law, countermeasures are a circumstance precluding wrongfulness. This is codified in Article 22 of the Articles of State Responsibility, which provide that uh, the wrongfulness of an act of a state that is taken as a countermeasure is actually precluded. But the Articles of State Responsibility, codifying here customer international law, um, actually provide for strict requirements for such countermeasures. And these requirements are first and foremost that they have to be in response to a prior international wrongful act. 
and they have to aim at inducing compliance with the international obligations of the state in question, and they have to be temporary and reversible in character. And of course, under Article 50, specific obligations, under Article 50 of the Articles on State Responsibility, specific obligations cannot be affected by countermeasures, notably in our case, human rights obligations. And of course, the countermeasures have to be proportionate, they have to be commensurate to the injury. So these are the requirements under general international law for the imposition of a lawful countermeasure um, against a state that has done a prior internationally wrongful act. Now, in the context of international dispute settlement, which is what we are um, discussing here today, a countermeasure is actually brought um, as a defense, as a legal argument of the respondent, which aims to defeat on the merits a claim that it bears international responsibility for an internationally wrongful act. So the question that arises here is, under what circumstances can the respondent actually bring this kind of defense before an international dispute settlement body? And what exactly are the limits of the subject matter jurisdiction of an international dispute settlement body when such a defense is actually invoked by the respondent? And this was one of the most important findings of the court in the recent Ticao Council judgments, which actually discussed this particular issue. Right. Uh, so uh, can you just, uh, you know, tell us the main issue of contention regarding countermeasures before an international adjudicative body? I believe that there are certain issues with the availability of defense, as you rightly mentioned, and then there's the issue of jurisdiction as well. Uh, and what did the ICAO and the ICJ specifically rule in this respect? So when issues of countermeasure are actually um, uh, at issue in an international dispute, uh, in an in international dispute settlement proceeding, the question is actually twofold. The first thing that an international dispute settlement body has to decide is whether the defense of countermeasures is actually in the first place applicable. So whether it is available to the respondent. Um, this is mostly relevant to treaty-based claims. So if a dispute is brought before the court on the basis of a particular convention, a particular treaty, the question here is whether uh, general international law and the defense of countermeasure is actually applicable in that particular case. So um, this is mostly an issue of interpretation. Uh, sometimes the convention itself is going to say that the law applicable to that dispute is not only the convention itself, but also any other rules of international law that are relevant, in which case, general international law, including countermeasures, would in principle be applicable. But sometimes it doesn't say anything at all. So the court in both cases would have to interpret the convention to see whether countermeasures were intended by the drafters to apply as a defense. In some cases, right. the court will find that this is not the case. For example, um, in the case of different hostages, the court found that the diplomatic regime does not allow for defenses under the general, general international law because it itself specifies the means for reacting to an illegality. The second issue, which is what the, um, uh, the court discussed in the recent case of the Cow Council, is whether when a defense is actually, when the defense of countermeasure is actually applicable, the court can also examine the issue of the prior internationally wrongful act which may not fall within its jurisdiction as an independent claim. So um, sometimes it may not even fall within its jurisdictional field in general. So a specialized court or tribunal may not be able to hear issues of use of force, for example, or violations of human rights. So the question here is whether in the context of the defense, the court can also exercise jurisdiction over these incidental issues, which would otherwise be outside 
its, uh, uh, its jurisdiction as established in that case or its jurisdictional field in general. In the case of the, the recent Ikao Council judgments, um, the, uh, um, the, the Ikao Council has already ruled that the issue of countermeasures does not present a challenge to its jurisdiction. So Qatar was saying that the Cow Council should examine the restrictions on aviation imposed by the Quartet. And the Quartet was saying that the Cow Council does not have jurisdiction to examine such restrictions because they were taken as a countermeasure in response to other acts which do not concern civil aviation. And therefore, the Cow Council does not have jurisdiction to examine them. The International Court of Justice said that the ICAO Council did not err in rejecting these objections. So it actually said that the ICAO Council has jurisdiction to examine in the context of applying the convention that is brought before it, these incidental issues in the context of a defense. It is important to quote here um, this particular part of the judgment, which said that um, the integrity of the Council's dispute settlement function would not be affected if the Council examined issues outside matters of civil aviation for the exclusive purpose of deciding a dispute which falls within its jurisdiction. So it is only in the, within the four corners of the Convention that forms the jurisdiction of the Court that the Court can actually examine such incidental issues. Uh, taking it in the broader context, you've already mentioned the Tehran hostages case. How sort of compliant is this reasoning by the International Court of Justice with its past jurisprudence? And what is the line to be drawn here? Can we take this reasoning which, which applied to defenses or circumstances precluding wrongfulness onto claims or counterclaims? Or are we to draw a line just in terms of the defenses? Okay. So, um, well, first of all, it is important to say that this particular ruling was in the context of a defense. So although we could draw some analogies with other issues, but it is important to specify that it was in that particular context that the court made its findings in the recent case of the, um, of the ICAO Council. It is also important to specify that the ICAO Council, uh, by reference to which this finding was made, is not, uh, as the court itself stipulated, a judicial institution in the proper sense, proper sense of the term. So uh, the fact that the court made such findings with respect to such a dispute settlement body uh, means that a fortiori, all adjudicative uh, international dispute settlement bodies, judicial bodies, actually have the same power. They have their jurisdiction includes the power to rule on incidental issues. Um, so the, the, the general... Um, uh, the general line of, um, of jurisprudence of the International Court of Justice is consistent with this finding. It has never said so far as explicitly that such power exists, but we can see from different judgments in the past that this power is actually uh, implied in the jurisdiction of the court. So first of all, we have seen in past uh, cases that the lone state responsibility is always applicable to a case, um, uh, to a dispute, even, this is, even if this is not clearly stipulated in the convention. For example, in the case um, of the Bosnian genocide, we've seen that the court clearly stated that the convention does not stand alone and that uh, um, along with the convention, in order to rule on whether a breach has taken place and what are the consequences of such breach, the court would also have to examine issues of state responsibility. 
in the same um, in the same sense the court will also have to apply the defenses under the law state responsibility because the application of a defense would uh, uh, would help the court to determine whether a breach has actually taken place and what would be the consequences of such breach and uh, we have seen in past jurisprudence that the court has said that all these kind of findings that are necessary for it to settle the dispute at hand for example in the case of nuclear tests um, would we would have to uh, the, the court is fully empowered to make such rulings so to ensure that the exercise of this jurisdiction of the merits even when exists so when an uh, a proper base of jurisdiction already exists the court also has the power to examine um, such incidental issues now with respect to whether uh, this can also be applied in other cases um, we would have to we would have to make some distinctions so uh, this would this can better be exemplified by the case of um, the uh, the Chagos MPA the arbitration uh, regarding the Chagos MPA so in that case um, the United Kingdom was actually saying that um, the real issue in that dispute was an issue of sovereignty so Mauritius was attempting to bring issues of sovereignty through the interpretation of the term coastal states in the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. So an analogous application of what we saw here in the case of a defense would mean that in order to determine whether the United Kingdom is a coastal state and therefore has the right to designate a marine protected area or other maritime zones, we would also have to decide issues of sovereignty. The tribunal in that case actually said that we need to weigh the different claims. So we have to see where the real heart, the real issue of the dispute lies. So is it really a matter of sovereignty or is it really a matter of application and interpretation of the convention in question? This is a very difficult task for the court. It is very subjective. How do you really know what is the real heart of the dispute? So we have seen so far that the ICJ has treated this kind of cases, for example, um, in the recent 1955 Treaty of Amity cases that are still pending, uh, as issues of interpretation. So if something actually is an issue of interpretation and arises out of the convention, then it is within its jurisdiction. And then all the other aspects of the dispute will have to be outside this jurisdiction and they will not be examined. But this is not a very easy task. So in that case, we see that the court, sa the court said that actually this is a case of sovereignty. You are only using the term coastal states to bring this issue of sovereignty within our jurisdiction. And this cannot happen because this was not the intention of the drafters of the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. But this implies the application of a good faith requirement. It implies, uh, in a sense, the application of a principle of abuse of rights. So it says you're not really bringing something that refers to the interpretation or application of the convention, but you are rather try to indirectly bring other issues before the court. In the case of the defense, such, um, such a, a consideration does not exist because in the case of the defense, the respondent is actually defending itself. So the case is brought by the applicant and the respondent is only bringing a defense in order to justify wrongdoing. So the abuse of right doctrine will have to be reversed here if we were to allow the respondent to simply throw out of the jurisdiction of the court a case simply by asserting that the measures were taken as a countermeasure, this would actually jeopardize the dispute settlement proceedings. So I think that, the, that we, have to, we have to take a strict view to the, to the court's decision 
in the present case, in the recent Ikao Council judgments, and to only apply this kind of reasoning to defenses and not to claims in general, because in the case of defenses, the ruling over the defense is indispensable for the courts to decide on the application of the convention in question. And because the respondent is actually in a position where it has to defend itself for an alleged wrongdoing. If we were, if we were to say that the court does not have jurisdiction to examine that, this would essentially mean that de facto, the respondent would not be able to use a defense that is actually available to justify its wrongdoing, and we would reach unjust judgments or judgments that are not comprehensive and they only deal with one part of the issue, whereas the rest remains unresolved. Right. No, sure. no that, that, that's, that's great. That uh, clarifies things uh, to a large extent. Thank you for that uh, extensive uh, elaboration. How do you see the implications or application of this uh, ICJ judgment to other specialized adjudicative bodies uh, apart from the ICAO, uh, because there have been instances, uh, for example, in the WTO's APTED body, where there have been certain contrary trends uh, seen, uh, and in other investor uh, arbitrations as well. So, yeah, what do you have to say about that? So, the first important aspect um, that, uh, as I said before, is that the Cow Council is actually a specialized dispute settlement body. So it is, uh, it is a body that is specialized specifically to issues of civil aviation. And still, the court said that it would be able to make such incidental findings in order to rule on an applicable defense. So in the same sense, a specialized adjudicative body, such as, for example, the WTO appellate body or a WTO panel, or even an investment arbitral tribunal, would also be in a position to make such incidental findings. So. The question here, first of all, in this kind of cases, the problem is not just uh, subject matter jurisdiction. So as I said before, we first have to ascertain that the defense of countermeasures is actually available. In the case of the WTO, we're not entirely certain. So the only case where this was brought before um, the, uh, the WTO dispute settlement system was the case of Mexico soft drinks. And in the case of Mexico soft drinks, the panel and the appellate body found that countermeasures would not be available to the respondent as a defense through interpretation of the, uh, of the WTO agreements. And it further said that the WTO cannot become an adjudicator of a non-WTO dispute. So it wouldn't be able to determine whether a prior internationally wrongful act, which is not related to the WTO agreements has taken place. Similarly, arbitral tribunals in the cases of Archer Daniels and um, uh, Corn Products International, which were also in the same context as, this, as the soft drinks uh, dispute in the WTO, also found that the NAFTA arbitral tribunals could not rule on the existence of a prior internationally wrongful act because this prior internationally wrongful act was not within their jurisdiction. So in that case, it was even more um, uh, surprising because it was actually a NAFTA uh, uh, violation that was alleged by Mexico, but it was under Chapter 20, whereas those tribunals were actually uh, established under Chapter 11. So they said we cannot really rule on whether the United States has violated uh, Chapter 20 of NAFTA because this is not within our jurisdiction. The problem there, however, is not just the issue of subject matter jurisdiction. So with respect to the issue of subject matter jurisdiction, it seems that the Cow Council judgment would also apply there. So it would contradict these findings. But there are several other problems. So in the case of investment arbitration, we also have the problem of personal jurisdiction. So the countermeasure would be a defense 
against the state of nationality of the investor and not the investor itself. So the state of nationality would not be a party to the dispute. So it's a monetary gold-like consideration. The one against which you are presenting your defense is not actually party to the proceedings. We also have the question of the nature of the investor's rights where we have divergent views um, in investment arbitrage tribunals. So can you actually present such a defense against an investor or it is precluded because they have substantive rights and this is a defense only against the host state that cannot apply in investment arbitration at all. So these are issues that we are hoping to, uh, to be re-examined in the issues uh, in the investment arbitral proceedings that are brought by Qatari nationals against the members of the quartet uh, in the context of the present dispute. But with respect to material jurisdiction, subject matter jurisdiction, it seems that the recent ICAO Council judgments are suggesting that there is no problem for these adjudicative bodies to also rule incidentally in order to decide on the application of the convention that actually falls within their jurisdiction, such incidental issues that arise in the context of countermeasures. Right. So if, if we uh, take Umar's question and make it a bit, bit more specific, so how do you see this tying into the parallel proceedings which have been initiated by Qatar against, against the quartet and in other uh, tribunals, but also we've seen recently Qatar Airways uh, instituting proceedings before investment arbitration proceedings against the quartet. So how does this issue or the, the point which was made by the ICJ on incidental proceedings tie into the, the parallel proceedings which are taking place? So the present case would not really apply to the uh, parallel proceedings regarding the convention, the elimination, racial discrimination. So with respect to the defense of countermeasures, this could not be brought as such as a defense against violations of human rights. So this would not be relevant to the proceedings before the International Court of Justice or the interstate communications before the Committee on Racial Discrimination. Um, with respect to the investment arbitration, this will actually be very interesting. So again, as I said before, the, the arbitral tribunals would first have to decide whether the defense of countermeasures is actually available. So whether you can bring this kind of defense against an investor, and it will have to deal again with the issue of whether investor rights are actually derivative or direct, and whether you can bring this kind of defense against them. Then it would also have to deal with issues of representation. So who is actually going to respond to these allegations? If the host state is not actually present to the disputes, then who is going to present arguments with respect to the prior international wrongful act? There are, of course, procedural ways to deal with this kind of issues, but it will first have to establish that this is actually the case, so that somebody would have to represent um, the state of nationality in these proceedings. With respect to the third issue, this is where the ICAO Council cases are coming and they're tying in. So um, the third issue is whether the arbitral tribunal can examine incidentally whether Qatar has actually um, harbored or sponsored terrorists and whether it has actually meddled in the international in the internal relations of other states. So this is the prior internationally wrongful act that is alleged by the quartet. With respect to this, if we apply by analogy the findings of the ICJ, then we will have to say that the arbitral tribunal have the competence to examine this kind of incidental issues. And if we think about it in reality, the, the argument that courts of general competence can actually examine incidental issues where specialized courts cannot is not really a claim about the competence 
of the court, but it is actually a claim about the competency of the judges. It's like implying that the persons who are actually going to make such rulings are not qualified enough or competent enough to rule incidentally in the context of the dispute on general issues of international law. But in international dispute settlement as we know it today, this is not really a very persuasive argument. So we know that many arbitrators or members of the appellate body or panelists actually have a very strong background in public international law. Some of them have even served as judges in other international courts and tribunals that deal with issues of general international law. So for the purposes of making just an incidental finding in the context of the reasoning to make a decision, I believe that all judges and arbitrators can actually proceed in such an examination. So there isn't really any kind of concern with respect to the competency of judges or panelists or arbitrators to make such incidental finding. So the subject matter jurisdiction of all adjudicative bodies actually entails the power to make such incidental findings in the context of the defense of countermeasures. Right, as we uh, you know, move to conclude this discussion, uh, talking from purely real politic perspective, do you think this uh, increase in examining incidental issues, uh, what, albeit within the context of the application of a treaty or the issue at hand, would you think that states might be more hesitant in going towards international dispute settlement, knowing that an incidental issue, uh, regardless of the extent to which it is being examined, comes under the purview of the court. W because we have seen recently that there have been concerns, you know, the, the US withdrawing from the World Health Organization and other condemnation of the ICC officials. So there has been a little tension uh, towards international courts and tribunals in general. So how, how does that, uh, you know, come into play in, in this situation? Yes, of course, you are absolutely right. Um, this, is, this is a concern. So we have a genuine dilemma here. So on, on the one hand, we are stretching the limits of state consent, and we are trying to include things that were not necessarily in the first place in the minds of states when they consented to international dispute settlement proceedings within the competence of the court. On the other hand, the other choice would be to just let states invoke countermeasures and other defenses and simply throw out of the jurisdiction of these courts and tribunals any issue that could be properly brought before them uh, through a compromissory clause or, um, or an optional clause or any other uh, kind of jurisdictional basis. So um, the problem here is, of course, that some states, such as the United States, who will accuse uh, international dispute settlement bodies of judicial overreach. We have already seen that in the case of the appellate body, which is now in a, um, uh, essentially uh, uh, in a stalemate because the United States is refusing to appoint uh, appellate body members on precisely these grounds, that the appellate body has um, uh, actually uh, taken it a bit too far. It has made uh, findings and issues that should not be within its competence. But this is, this is actually a choice that has to be made. So, of course, we cannot, we cannot really tell whether international dispute settlement proceedings, uh, judicial proceedings more specifically, are the best way to solve international disputes. But when there is a compromissory clause, for example, that provides for such a dispute settlement mechanism, we cannot just let this dispute settlement mechanism uh, die simply because states are going to allege that their actions are taken as a means of countermeasures. So we have to find a way to, to, we have to find the fine line. And the fine line here is that 
specifically in the context of the defense, for a court to fulfill its jurisdictional mandate, to make a ruling on whether an internationally wrongful act has taken place and the consequence of such an act, it has to also look at the possible defense, because otherwise the respondent would not be able to avail itself of the defense, or the court would not be able to exercise its jurisdiction altogether. So I think that this is, this is just a genuine dilemma, but for me, the answer is in favor of upholding jurisdiction. And I think that this is also the case in view of the recent Cal Council judgment, where we see that, um, that, that the court has actually taken this position. Great, on that uh, dilemma, we'll end the podcast. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Anna, for being on the podcast. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure to host you. And I hope you come again sometime. So that's it from us uh, for this podcast. And we'll see you in the Thank next episode. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye.